Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast episode. My name is J.W. Marshall, Learning Solutions Director at MarketScale, and we've got a great guest on with us today on Voices of E-Learning, uh, Brady Colby. He is the founder and CEO of 32 edu and also an expert in residence for holland iq brady how are you doing today i'm doing pretty well thanks for having me on absolutely and to start out if you could just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and uh your company and uh your expert in residence uh to give them a little bit of background on uh where you're coming from today yeah absolutely um so the bulk of my professional life has been spent in higher ed specifically in ed tech in that segment so from uh, reporting software, and then uh, specifically in the OPM space, the online program manager space, uh, and now uh, independent consulting. Uh, so I've, I've been in the world of, of strategy for higher ed tech for pretty much my entire life outside of a, a brief stint at Citibank. Um, been a part of quite a few product launches, online program launches, worked with a few hundred universities on putting research together for online degree and certificate programs and helped uh, quite a few uh, providers in the space uh, develop their online education strategy. Uh, and, and that's what we do really with, with 32EDU and uh, do some of the, the same work with, with Holland IQ and uh, consulting on, on this OPM space and, and doing some, some consulting and, and some really deep dive insights for them as well. That's great. And I'm sure this isn't a busy time for you at all, given uh, the shift uh, towards massive shift towards online learning right now. Yeah, it's especially picked up. We had just put out some some new data at Hall and IQ that was gauging uh, the traction of uh, public-private partnerships, the PPP. So that would be boot camps, OPMs, and, and international pathway providers. And we were noting that things have really picked up here in the first half of 2020, and I think there's no reason for that to slow down. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings me to one of my first questions. Obviously, there's a big uptick right now. That'll continue on through the fall and probably through the spring. Where do you think we'll land two years from now? I know it's hard to tell the future. Five years from now, do you think we'll, we'll see this acceleration decelerate and then kind of balance out? Or do you think this is just going to continue to take off? Yeah, there's definitely certain segments that are accelerating and there's certain segments that are just kind of uh, that, that are kind of giving off false flags right now. Uh, the, the segment that we're going to be talking about today, the micro credential space is one that uh, researchers have pretty much unanimously agreed on is one that has a lot of tailwinds with it now that will be something that really continues to grow and has already seen some pretty substantial growth in light of the pandemic. So uh, I think there's some other spaces, obviously, in the international pathways space. That's a really troubled spot right now, but they've done some really innovative things with switching to online delivery there. Uh, the MOOC space has kind of come back into the spotlight and, and really shown some pretty drastic growth. We just saw the massive funding round with Coursera, putting them up over the two and a half billion dollar valuation mark. Uh, so there, there's a couple spaces with these really compact programs, these shorter programs that have some really good prospects for sustained growth. And the big question is why micro-credentialing? Uh, what is it about that that is 
uh, either suiting today's learners better or providing a, a gap that it hasn't been there in traditional uh, education, even online education with traditional universities. Um, why the, the major shift right now? Yeah, that's been uh, something that's been kind of lingering out there in the industry and in higher ed for a while now, these kind of shorter, more condensed programs, more condensed learning. Uh, one of the things I wanted to point out that when we talk about micro-credentials, uh, there's some providers that get into a uh, really, really specific definition of that, that uh, they talk about they'll have a 20-minute course uh, on a on a certain subject, and, and that's what they mean by micro-credentials, micro-learning. But what we're talking about here is those, you know, few-month certificate programs um, up to maybe a year or so. Uh, but this is something that's really come about in what, in light of what a lot of dubbed the fourth industrial revolution, uh, skills are changing really fast. Uh, the things that you need to have to be able to do to be employed somewhere change really fast and and uh, going through higher education and getting a degree for four years and and hoping that that sustains you and provides you with the skills necessary for a lifetime of employment it doesn't really add up anymore you you really have to be continuously learning and, and adapting to the new skills that are necessary in the marketplace. And accordingly, uh, the shift has kind of been recognizing that slowly and then figuring out how higher education can fit that need. And the way that higher education fits into that is with these uh, micro-credential programs. Yeah, and the, I like the fourth industrial revolution. I like to call it the beginning of the golden age of e-learning. Um, yeah. and, and just because it's the golden age of e-learning, hopefully, uh, that doesn't mean that it's a 100% wholesale, uh, no uh, person-to-person interaction, whether that's online or on-site, that type of thing. Have you seen um, a lot of, uh, of your clients looking at a hybrid approach or are, are a lot of them moving fully online? That's something that uh, has changed in light of COVID-19. So previously, the discussion was about, uh, is a school willing to go online? Are they willing, is, is faculty willing to adopt online? Are they sufficiently confident in the quality of it? And, you know, people would go back and forth and debate on these things internally. Uh, but now we've kind of reached this, this point where um, people have been sufficiently convinced of the quality and of the necessity of online learning um and so in light of that it's become i saw the chegg ceo mention uh i think it was yesterday in their earnings call that online learning is in the future of higher education it's the core of it right now and that's really true it's it's uh, so, so every institution at, at some level is incorporating online learning. So that really is um, a, a signal that this hybrid approach is taken off because not all are really willing to full sale, go fully online at this point, but pretty much unanimously across the board, even internationally, there's been this recognition that there has to be some aspect of learning that takes place online just for the sake of, uh, for the sake of, um, redundancies and situations like this, these unforeseen situations, just for the sake of uh, broadening access. Uh, there's just a number of reasons, student preferences, uh, that, that universities have really uh, come to the conclusion that it's a necessary, at least part of their offerings. Yeah. And it seems like scalability is a big uh, benefit to this. Uh, some some maybe smaller private universities can now scale out a little larger 
Um, and if enrollment dips, as it looks like it may with a certain percentage of uh, this incoming fall class, that could be really something that saves a lot of these universities. How do you see that, again, in your crystal ball that's not too far away now, uh, playing out in the fall? Um, do you think these universities are all going to make it or are we going to see a, a major shakeup this year? Well, you know, you, you brought up the point about some of the smaller universities that it provides them this opportunity to scale. And there was an article a few months back about the University of Illinois MBA program being the largest, uh, their online MBA being the largest MBA that's out there. And that was not quite true. In actuality, the at least of last year, the largest uh, MBA program in the U.S. was at LSU Shreveport. Um, and that's because they offered a fully scalable, really affordably priced online MBA. Um, and so that's just a perfect testament of the kind of opportunity that online learning provides for these these kind of uh, smaller state schools and these smaller private schools. Another example would be the fact that um, uh, Master of Public Health is one of the more popular graduate degrees. The largest one, the largest Master of Public Health program in the U.S. as of last year was Benedictine University. You know, it's, it's another example that, you know, these schools that you would never expect are really ones that are able to scale because of the opportunities that are provided here. Now, whenever we start talking about uh, schools that that'll survive and won't survive. There's there's tons of questions about you know what's going to happen in the regulatory environment. Uh, one of the big issues that, that people have to watch for there is that um, the financial stability of the school is something that is taken into account for a school to participate in NC Sarah and be able to enroll students in other states. Uh, so once that fallout happens and the financial health of a lot of these universities is really set in with uh, after that data has been reported, uh, then then we'll start to see some changes. But that'll take, you know, that'll take some time. It takes a while for that data to be reported. So um, there's definitely going to be some schools that, that die off in this. We've already seen that happen. We saw that happening right before the pandemic hit with Concordia Portland, even though they had a substantial online presence. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be ones that, have already taken to heart the changes that needed to take place and they're going to flourish in this in this new age. Yeah, it seems like the schools that were already piloting some online or at least a hybrid were in a much better position when this hit last spring uh, than those that really hadn't uh, put any foundation in and, and were scrambling. So it will be exactly. interesting to, to see how that plays out. Uh, uh, the prevailing theory that I've read is, is that the kind of schools at the top, the Ivy League, some of those will will probably be okay. The schools kind of on the, the lower tier, the community colleges, there's going to still be a really big need for that. And really it's the middle class of colleges mm -hmm. and universities that are in the most trouble that they may have to uh, couple up with a bigger system or uh, they may really run the risk of uh, of not being in business, whether it's this year or next year in the, in the kind of short term. Um, have you read anything around that or seen any, oh, yeah. anything around That's that? That's exactly right. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that kind of came to light over the past few months was that the for-profit universities had started doing really well again. Um, they had been on the downslide in terms of enrollment for a few years now, uh, but recently they've started doing pretty well again. And that's solely because they've been out, they've been doing this for some time. They they, they know what they're doing in this space. This isn't new to them, whereas this is a, a, a totally new thing for a significant amount of universities. So, you know, there's there's a lot of schools that 
had been out and operating in this space already that are going to come through pretty well with this. There are a lot of ones that had kind of pushed back and, you know, in, in those instances, they have to have some really unique uh, value propositions for them to, to really remain financially healthy. All right. We're going to shift gears a little bit. There was a term that you threw out there in the very beginning, and I want to make sure all of our uh, audience uh, knows what this is, what this means. Uh, you referenced an OPM. Uh, can mm-hmm. you just kind of level set what that is uh, for our audience? Yeah, before the year 2000, it wasn't really uh, anything that existed, and, and now it's it's an industry that's in the, the billions, uh, four to five billion, depending on who you ask. Um, but OPM is, is what it's usually dubbed is online program managers. Uh, some of the more well-known ones, the only publicly traded one is 2U. Um, there's academic partnerships, BISC, Wiley has a branch uh, in their organization, so it's Pearson. So some of the larger textbook publishers uh, do this. Uh, but what they do is they partner with a particular university and they help them build out and deliver their online degree and certificate programs. Um, some of them take a share of the revenue, a percentage of the revenue uh, that's the tuition for those programs. Others like Noodle Partners operate on a fee for service basis. So, you know, there's, there's a really, uh, it's a really pretty new market that has only kind of shown up, like I mentioned in the past about 20 years, but has really taken off first in the U.S. and now internationally. And speaking of international, you also mentioned uh, international pathways. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So in the international pathway space, there's uh, the providers that will um, go and set up a a local facility to recruit students and bring them up to speed on uh, their language proficiency and and general education courses uh, and enable them to transfer to a university here in the United States and sometimes in the UK and Canada and, and some of the other markets with some of the leading global universities. Um, so there's some providers like Shorelight, like Navitas, like Into University Partnerships, Study Group. Um, yeah, there's some of those providers that really do that highly localized international recruitment for the, these, these universities. And that's what we would mean by those pathway providers. Perfect. All right. I think we've set the stage now. Let's kind of dive into the topic for today. I know you've worked with numerous companies developing their micro-credential strategy in the U.S. and abroad. Um, talk to us about, you know, what is that process and and what are those best practices for micro-credentialing? Yeah. Um, whenever we talk about micro-credentialing, the first thing I, I think it's really useful to, to put a number to it, to kind of put a face on it, that it's a almost $600 million industry in the U.S. alone, these micro-credentials are. And uh, that number was prior to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, EY Parthenon had done uh, a little bit of a look at this and they noted that the the micro-credential space is supposed to be one of the ones that is, is comes out strongest in terms of the effect of uh, COVID-19 on it, both in the short term and the long term. And we've already started to see that with some of the company results. Um, but like we talked about whenever we're talking about the strategy for these programs, um, we talked about the the shifting demands of the workforce. Uh, so traditionally in higher education, there was a lot more broad sweeps about 
what the program is preparing you to do, it, it, the kind of liberal arts influence on higher education where it enables you to do, to do a lot of things, um, whereas now these alternative credentials are really hyper-focused and, and really specifically targeted towards uh, employment outcomes. Um, and I think that's where the opportunity really arose once we started seeing questions about uh, the value of degree programs, these new uh types of education offerings popped up that were particularly focused on employment outcomes. So whenever we're talking about strategies for these programs, it's really about understanding the local and national employment situation and and what skills are necessary for employment and and moving up the ladder. And it it seems like a little bit like a no-win situation for a lot of these institutions because they're expected to teach learners how to learn, expand their uh, you know, well-roundedness as a student, as a learner, but then they're also expected to teach a lot of skills that the workforce is looking for. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of employers don't feel like college graduates are coming out with those skills uh, that they need. Um, is there a solution? I know that if you had the answer to that, you'd, you'd be uh, doing pretty well, but, um, you know, what, what are the considerations there that uh, your clients or universities are looking at to bridge that gap uh, when there are only so many hours in the day to, to teach so many skills. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I have kind of a, a working operating assumption in my head that I haven't quite tested out yet, but uh, that my, my theory is that in 99% of cases, you can tell how well a school is doing financially and how well they will do just based on their mission statement. And and let me, let me clarify. So like you talked about, there's kind of these two competing principles of, of what higher education is that are always... Uh, going back and forth with each other. And, and in one instance, there's the assumption or the, the demand that higher education is your uh, ticket to the labor force. It's your ticket to gainful employment. And the other, uh, the other theory is the other uh, notion about higher education. The competing notion is that more uh, well-rounded approach that uh, higher education is the institution that kind of teaches you how to learn and, you know, prepares you more generally for things, uh, but is less hyper-focused on preparing you for gainful employment. And I think the universities that are going to have the most trouble, the ones that are kind of caught in that conundrum that you talked about, are the ones that aren't quite clear internally on where they fall on, you know, are, are we a university that's hyper-focused on employment or are we a, a university that's hyper-focused on uh, kind of the educating of the whole person? Uh, I think you, if you pick one or the other, you're going to have a lot more clarity with your faculty members, with your staff, with your students, and it's just going to bear out a lot better in terms of satisfaction and then your future prospects. I think those ones that, that aren't clearly communicating throughout the organization where they land in that are, are the ones that are really in trouble. And do you think it's possible on that theory to to have a, a mission statement that is a isn't an either or it isn't an and both but it is well defined that this is you know how we're doing this side of the equation and this is how we're doing the other side of the equation. I certainly think it is, but I think it's just we're we're just now starting to have that conversation. So I think it's going to take a little while for schools to flesh out exactly what that looks like. I mean, you know, we're still tied to the the 120 hour, the 120 credit hour bachelor's degree, and you know, I'm yet to to fully understand why we 
sort of landed on that number. Uh, so, you know, there's a number of things that, you know, there's some underlying assumptions about how things have to work in higher education that we have to challenge and we have to talk through before we come out on the other side with a really clear idea of the mission. Um, but I, I think it's that the hand has kind of been forced on that now. Yeah, and then there's actually been some some articles recently written about uh, three-year programs are maybe more attractive for a lot of students. It's one less year not in the workforce. Uh, I know internationally uh, the three-year programs are a little more standard. Uh, what are your thoughts on the three-year program? Yeah, there's there's kind of two two things to that. First of all, if you look at every year, the Learning House now Wiley puts out an annual survey of online students and they ask them about what are the most important factors in choosing an online program and almost unanimously uh, every year one of the top reasons is the duration of the program um, students just by and large and we all know this you, you would rather finish a task that you start sooner rather than later uh, you don't want to if if you have two roads to go down and one takes a day and the other takes two days, that road that's shorter is something that's going to be more appealing to you just naturally. Uh, so, you know, people just prefer these shorter programs. And then the other thing that we've seen kind of pushing the opposite direction is those gap year programs. So Kaplan started this boost program where it's this structured gap year program for students that eventually adds some credits. But it ultimately what it does is it shortens the full college experience uh, and, and does something outside of the full experience that provides students with a little bit more clarity on what they want to do in the workforce. So there's kind of uh, pressures coming in every direction to kind of say, you know, hey, let's let's shorten this up. Let's get this down to, to what this needs to be. Let's 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 make sure we're, we're focusing on efficiencies in terms of the curriculum that students are required to take while at the same time not sacrificing uh, the whole mission of educating the whole person that, that a lot of universities still have. Well, and it also addresses a little bit the uh, the, the affordability issue. Um, a three-year exactly. degree program should cost less by nature. Um, exactly. wouldn't mean the school would make less money because now they can have more you know, people take more degrees again, that scalability. So uh, that's an interesting uh, factor as well. Um, I think I kind of land a hot take on my opinion is that it, it's a slippery slope to get too skills based at the mm -hmm. institutional level because those skills are going to become out of date sometimes within a year or two. And mm -hmm. so if we only teach our students the skills they need for 2021, 20, um, then those workers may struggle uh, a year, two years, five years later, if they've not gotten that core foundation of uh, kind of learning how to learn, becoming lifelong learners, continuous learners. Um, another uh, uh, interesting uh, idea that's been thrown out there recently is the idea of launching evergreen degree programs where uh, you always have access as kind of a membership um, throughout your career. So as the curriculum changes with your alma mater, there are some opportunities there that aren't uh, nickel and diming you as an alumni to take this course or that course, micro-credential course for 800 or $2,000, but it would be more of kind of a membership that uh, could be scalable. Have you heard any of that chatter or is that something that's uh, kind of brand new to the scene? Well, I would say, first of all, that that's something that is uniquely possible in the framework of micro-credentials. You know, so if we're if we're still tied to the, the four-year bachelor's degree, two-year master's degree, uh, we, we can't really – that system doesn't work with that idea of the, the continuous lifelong learning. What we have to have is these frequently updated shorter programs that are focused 
Um, and I think that's where the micro credentials really contribute to that evergreen uh, model. I think that's something that, that we are starting to see the beginning of in some cases. Um, one thing that I, I, I think of whenever we talk about that, there's a, a new organization. The guys from Degreed had started a new organization called Learn In. And what they do is they work with employers to uh, build into their employee relations or their human resources systems what they call learning sabbaticals. Uh, so they're kind of tackling it from the employee side, which is is pretty cool. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, we're seeing uh, from certain universities starting to to roll that out uh, on their end as well. So I think that's something that we're kind of just at the cusp of seeing. But you know, in light of uh, uh, the the higher adoption of micro credentials and MOOCs, I think it's something that's certainly possible in the in the longer term future. Absolutely, and that brings up a, another good point that. Uh, Colleges and universities aren't the the only game in town anymore. There are a lot of third-party micro-credentialing companies and a lot of uh, businesses that are then offering. Obviously, there's always been the Microsoft certifications and the Googles, but now you're seeing a lot more uh, companies provide those micro-credentials for their company, for their industry. Um, and I think a lot of that is this transition to online learning is making that possible and kind of democratizing learning in a lot of ways. Um, is that a, a big fear for colleges and universities right now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you look at the, the Google IT certificate programs that they've launched on the Coursera platform the past year, and they recently expanded their product offering there as well. And from all accounts, those programs are just just raking in students, um, really high demand because uh, one of the interesting uh, use case or one of the interesting uh, hypothetical questions that I came across recently when we talk about uh, the employers competing with um, universities, uh, I had the question uh, asked, somebody asked on LinkedIn, uh, would you rather have an MBA from Harvard or take part in Y Combinator? And they looked at kind of the outcomes of each each one of those situations. And, you know, it really depends on the situation. There's certain accelerator programs, certain things like that, that are really more valuable for uh, employment and for business outcomes than than graduate degrees, even at an individual level. Um, so there's definitely a lot of pressure from the employment side. Uh, and then we've got also these kind of uh, new and emerging education providers, uh, these companies like Udemy, Udacity, um, the plethora of boot camp providers, 500 some odd of those that are really effectively training people for employment and really highly embedded with employers and have a really, really good uh, track record of keeping a pulse on, on what their students need to know and, and updating that frequently. So, you know, there's certain fields like software development, software engineering, where higher education is really behind uh, non-university entities and training people for these jobs. Absolutely. Um, well, that's we could keep going on on this, but I see we're getting close to our time. And I wanted to shift gears one last time and talk about a new platform that you've recently released uh, here in the last week. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that platform and, and what it does? Yeah. So uh, at 32EDU, we rolled out a new platform called IO, uh, and it's at 32EDU.io. And what it is, is it's a platform that 
brings together all of the most relevant news and insights about what's happening in the OPM space and the bootcamp space in this specific micro credential space. Basically, uh, any ways that universities and, and the broader edtech industry are collaborating together for innovation and, and working within the, the context of digital learning. So it brings to you this, this really curated uh, information about what's going on on a daily basis with, with commentary as to, to why that particular piece of information is, is relevant. So, you know, for example, today we talked a little bit about uh, Springboard, this boot camp provider that just got $31 million in funding uh, for their Series B. They saw, uh, talked about the success of these non-university entities like Springboard. They've seen a huge uptick in enrollments, um, both before and since the pandemic started. And, you know, there's uh, been a number of other uh, instances like that that we, that we cover in the platform. That's great. And I know uh, I follow you on LinkedIn and, and see a lot of uh, the stories come through there. So now that there's a new platform, I'll certainly be signing up for that. And uh, that's a big reason why we had you on as an expert today. So uh, that's all the time that we have. Brady, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everybody out there for listening. This is J.W. Marshall at MarketScale. And remember to always keep learning. <laughs>